Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, my guest is German sports writer Ronald Reng. We are discussing his book, A Life Too Short, The Tragedy of Robert Enke, published in October 2011 by Yellow Jersey Press. In recent years, there has been increased attention on both sides of the Atlantic to the mental health of athletes. This past summer, two players in the National Hockey League committed suicide, apparently a result of struggles with depression. A compelling new book by former Manchester City player Paul Lake describes how he went into severe depression when injuries kept him off the field. And just this month, one of the all-time greats of professional basketball, Jerry West, revealed that he has suffered from depression his entire life. There is now growing awareness that the life of a professional athlete takes a great psychological toll, and that the old mantra that players must have mental toughness as well as physical prowess needs to be rethought. One event that brought attention to the mental health of athletes was the death two years ago of German footballer Robert Enke. It was expected that Enke would be the starting goalkeeper when the German national team took the field at the 2010 World Cup. His suicide in November 2009 sent a shock through Germany and through the broader sports world. How was it, people asked, that a famous athlete at the top of his game with a wife and new daughter, would decide to take his own life. Ronald Reng's biography is an effort to answer that question. An award-winning sports writer in Europe, Ronnie was also friends with Robert Enke. He had complete access to Robert's personal diary and papers, as well as to his family and friends. The result is an intimate portrait of a man who was athletically gifted, kind-hearted, and humble, yet who is also besieged at different points in his life by anxiety, doubt, and major depression. Ronnie sought to give readers a view of the world from his friend's perspective, and he succeeds in this. His book is an extraordinary piece of sports writing, and as Ronnie says in the interview, he considers it to be his life's accomplishment. So let's turn to our conversation. Thank you for joining me on New Books and Sports, Ronnie. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce, for for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So if we can, I'd like to begin by asking about your own background. And by way of an introduction, I'll tell listeners that Ronnie is originally from Germany, uh, but he's worked several years covering football in England, and now he's been based in Barcelona for the last decade. And I will also tell American listeners that Ronnie is uh, a highly acclaimed sports writer in Europe. He's won the prize for best reporting from the German Association of Sports Journalists several times, and uh, one of his previous books was named the best sports book in the UK, which is quite an accomplishment for a uh, sports writer not from the UK. So, Ronnie, can you tell us first how you got started in sports writing? Well, I actually started very young. I think uh, freelancing with 13 or 14 years, and I think probably because unconsciously I realized I would never be good enough um, as a sportsman to to fulfill my dream to to become a professional sports um, sports person. So I thought, man, that um, writing maybe is the the next best uh, thing to to being a sportsman. And um, 
during university time in Munich, I started working for one of the, the bigger German national newspapers. It's called Süddeutsche Zeitung. And when I finished my university de de degree at 26, you know, we're quite slow in Germany finishing our university. I just um, felt that um, there was. I, w I wanted to live in England mainly, to be honest. I was more interested in English girls <laughs> and English literature than English football at the time. But um, I also felt that because it will be talking mid 90s now that the Champions League just had taken off, um, and because of the Bosman um, law, more players from other countries would move to England and so I felt there might be a market for me. So I persuaded Süddeutsche Zeitung to to get get me a retainer and become their English football correspondent and that's how I really well started. And um after a few years in England my wife then she was my girlfriend. She didn't want to live in England anymore <laughs> and I didn't want to go back to Germany so I persuaded her to to move to Spain and we we never got away from Barcelona again to yeah. this day. Yeah. So before you made the the switch from athlete to sports writer, can I ask were you were you a goalkeeper? Uh, you can ask, but I was such a bad goalkeeper that I think it's not worth talking about it. <laughs> but uh, it's true because I was because I was such a bad goalkeeper. I, I was always very interested in the good ones, um, and um, both my football books are about goalkeeper. Totally different books. Um, one a very humorous book, the other one obviously a. Quite a sad one, but uh, they're still both goalkeeper books. And uh, yes, I'm still fascinated by that position. And I and I played till I'm now 41, and I think I played till 30, 37 on the amateur level as a goalkeeper. Oh, okay. I ask that because uh, the the way you describe particular matches from the viewpoint of a, of a goalkeeper, I, it, it's clear that you understand how the positions played and the tensions in the position. And, and, uh, and I, I actually, that's one of the most enjoyable features of the book, I think, is just this view of the match from the perspective of the goalkeeper. Yeah, that was one of the, the targets I set myself when I started the book. I really wanted uh, to give people who never played in that position the, 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 the feeling what it's like to be standing there as the last man, the last line of defense. Um, that that thinking and that fear which trips you lots of times when you're in goal, that you know, to be afraid um, is quite a normal state of the mind of a goalkeeper. And in the best case scenario, a goalkeeper will use this fear to concentrate even harder. But there are other times as a goalkeeper where you just, uh, well, you don't want to be there and you're just afraid that the ball will get into your area and you have to do something. Yeah, yeah. So you were also a friend of, of Robert Enke, and uh, I'll ask, how, did, how t did you two become friends? Well, we started off as, it was a normal, well, it wasn't a normal uh, journalist-players uh, relationship, but we started out, um, when I met him as a journalist, I went to interview him in, in Lisbon, where he was playing for Benfica, the big Portuguese side, um, in 2002, and I just went to interview him there. And it was one of the moments where I realized I spent the whole day with him because I traveled to be there. We had lunch together. Um, he showed me his house. Um, we got on well. Um, we got on better than, you know, your normal 45-minute interview. Mm -hmm. um, and then just just half a year later, by, by coincidence, or not coincident, he signed for Barca, Barcelona Football Club. And suddenly he was in the town I was living in. And so there we were, two, two Germans living abroad. And that obviously... Mm -hmm. Um, brought us closer together um, and he went he left Spain I think after two or three years and I whenever I went to Germany 
after the, these days, um, I went to visit him for one day or later, and we obviously stayed in contact on the phone. Um, so we weren't the closest of friends, and I think that because I was a journalist and he was a footballer, maybe there was always something still between us, uh, but we, we were quite, yeah, we were, we were good friends, and we talked about lots of stuff like pressure in football, um, where I thought I could relate to uh, being a a book writer as well, you know, getting criticized and stuff like that. So we, we would talk on the phone. Um, well, it wasn't regular. It wasn't like once a week, but it might be five times one week. And then it would be just sending each other text messages for, for the next two or three months. And then I would see him maybe twice a year or something. Yeah, yeah. And he had talked to you about uh, writing his life story, correct? Yes, but uh, that was rather... A spur of the moment uh, thing. That was um, when I gave him my first uh, football book. I said before it was it was about a goalkeeper as well. It's called Keeper of Dreams, mm-hmm. um, and I gave it to him because I thought he might be interested to read a goalkeeper's story. And he came back to me after having read this book, and uh, just said to me, "Ronnie, that book was incredible." And I was embarrassed by his praise. And um, <laughs> I was looking looking for something to say to get away from him praising me. And so I just said uh, because I didn't couldn't think of anything else. Said. Um, Oh, one day we will write your book. Um, and I thought it, as I said, not really a joke, but just a line, nothing more. I hadn't given it any more thought. But I could see immediately um, in his eyes that the idea was catching on, huh. that he really liked the idea. And from that very moment on, um, he came back to me every now and then saying, uh, Ronnie, I'm already taking notes for our book. And um, yes, so in the back of my mind, I had this idea that one day we would write together his maybe autobiography. But I think for him, the idea to write this book was always much more serious than it was for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you described the nature of your relationship, and uh, you were not aware of his his depression while he was alive and you were friends, correct? Yes, I think that shows you two things. Um, One, I said before, that maybe was that uh, I was still a journalist, um, so he might might have been just a bit more scared to open up to me, um, because in the back of of his mind, even if he knew he could trust me, there was a feeling, well... Ronnie might just be drunk one night and tell yeah. tell another journalist about it. But the more interesting point I think about this is it shows you that um, people suffering from depression find it very, very hard to open up to the public, um, to tell even people close to them. And that certainly was the case with Robert. I think in total, including his family, his wife and his parents, there were, were maybe just 15 people, mm-hmm. uh, one five who knew about it. No, nobody else knew about it. It seems that people suffering from depression still get the feeling that the public or even friends won't not understand them. They won't understand them. Um, and they would just look at them thinking, oh, this guy is weird. He says something wrong in his head. So there's still that fear, um, which is part of the de- depression, that the people suffering from it believe um, no, I can't tell anybody. And that makes it even worse, you know, the illness, mm-hmm. the feeling that um, I have to hide all the time. So this is a biography of, of remarkable detail and remarkable insight. And, and what is striking is that uh, it gives the reader not only a view of Robert from the perspective of others, but also something of, of uh, an internal view of Robert, of the way, of the way he saw, saw the world. And so I was wondering, how did you research the book? How did you gain this this detail and this ins- insight? What were some of the source materials that you were able to use? Mm-hmm. That was maybe my my biggest ambition um, because depression is an internal 
disease. It's very much about what you feel and what you can't feel anymore. So the illness really goes on inside mm-hmm. you. So, so my big ambition was I wanted to show to the reader what is going on um, in the mind of a depressed person. Mm-hmm. And maybe the, the, the biggest advantage I had in this was that uh, Robert had written down a diary. He had a diary and his wife gave it to me because, as I said before, we had plans um, to write the autobiography one day and he always talked about um, taking notes so his wife believed that it was um, his wish or in that we had his uh, his um, what's, uh, I'm lacking a word now sorry uh, that that he mm-hmm. so that it was in his in his wish as well that we would uh, use that diary mm-hmm. as well and that obviously gave me the biggest um, biggest insight in his mind and the, the other sources I had was certainly my, my friendship with him you know the, all, the, all the conversations we had years ago mm-hmm. and I had I have to say a, a total access to well to every anybody I wanted to speak to I think I did more than 40 interviews and yeah. not a single person turned me down and these interviews regularly turned into proper conversations you know with his yeah. two closest friends and with, with his wife I, I spent weeks um, talking to them and I was lucky in a sense as well that Robert and his wife, Teresa, were people who, who kept things. You know, there are these people who, who throw everything away and okay. there are other people who keep literally everything. So they had real boxes of um, of letters, of news, newspaper clippings, um, of, of diaries. I could use uh, Teresa's diaries as well. Um, and it was quite – even if it was quite a, a sad work as well because it was dealing with the dead – the death of a friend um, it had its charming and, and moving moments and one of these moments where for example when, when we found a box of letters Robert and Teresa had written to each other I didn't want to read these letters and I gave the box to Teresa and asked her to read through them again and tell me um, stuff which she, th- she thought would be important for the book and there was um, for her quite well overwhelming at times but but um, I think helpful as well to read these letters again and remember the moments she, she shared with Robert um, so I used everything that book was an obsession for me because it felt like it was something like the last wish Robert had um, for me to write this book and, and I wanted to get it right and I wanted to get it with as much detail as I could so I, I spent 10 months doing nothing else I traveled to well, throughout Europe to all the places where 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 he played to um, to visit the places, to be able to describe the places which were important to the book, to interview people. I, I went to new newspaper archives. I had videos from all the important games. Um, and the help I got from the people was just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, not, not a single person turned me down. They, I could come back to people who are quite busy, like, the, for example, uh, the goalkeeper coach of the Germany national side. I could phone him just to ask... Um, Sorry, can you check again yeah. uh, where, where you met with um, the national coach when you decided that you would um, include Robert in the national team for, for the European Championship? Where did this meeting take place? And he would check his diary again just oh. to find out again and stuff like that. Um, so, yes, it was in that, in that perspective, it was um, dream conditions for, for a writer or a biographer. Yeah. I had all the access you could imagine to. Yeah. So when you looked at his diaries, when you looked at his letters, uh, having been his friend, were you were you shocked at what you found, or did you have a sense of aha? Now I now I understand. Yes, it was more for me. It was more, more like this. A lot of people said to me, "It must have been horrible for you to to go through these diaries." Um, 
to be honest, no, I didn't have that feeling. I, I had this feeling of um, being grateful, being mm-hmm. being able to understand what, what happened to him. Um, after having read his diary, the more complicated part for me was the decision, what will I publish and what will I leave out? Um, and I felt very much on my own, very much alone in that decision. Um, and I think I decided maybe in hindsight I could have published a bit more, but I was a bit scary um, mm. to, you know, to publish too intimate uh, stuff. And I was very clear, and I'm, I'm happy about this. I'm very glad I did this. I was very clear from this. I wouldn't publish anything Robert wrote in his diary about other people, you know, his, mm. his teammates or, or, or managers or even, even his agent or friends um, because I felt if I would publish – these comments from from a dead beloved person um, it can destroy the other yeah. the other people because they've got no chance well to 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 hit back basically yeah, yeah. Um, so I was very clear on this decision but but it was very hard to to make a decision what I would publish about his inner thoughts and whatnot mm-hmm. so let's turn to Robert's story and I'll ask you to begin by giving a, a sketch of his early background where did he come from and uh, what was his upbringing like well, he, Robert uh, was one of the. He was basically the last generation with, which was raised in the in eastern Germany. Um, and when the wall, the Berlin Wall, came down and Germany was re- reunited, he was about 12 years old. So he had his childhood still in the GDR, mm-hmm. and suddenly um, had to change country basically. And uh, um, and from the very beginning, um, he was a good football player. He didn't play in goal just by by a chance. Um, the goalkeeper of his hometown team in Jena, in East Germany, went away and they were looking for a new goalkeeper and he just went in goal and did everything right and never got out of goal. Um, played for Germany under youth, um, under 18, under 16 national sides quite early on. And if you talk to people who played with him, it seemed to be that he was already standing out as a goalkeeper. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, In hindsight, it also becomes quite clear that he was prone for depression from an early age on. Um, he made his professional debut in the second division of Germany at the age of 17. He was still going to school at the time, mm-hmm. training with the with the professional team and uh, then going to school in the afternoon, combining the two things. And in his second game, he, he made a mistake. He let a ball slip, a cross slip, mm-hmm. um, and the opponent scored. And after that, he didn't go to school for a week. He mm-hmm. just locked himself in because he, he wasn't able um, to deal with the, the fact that he had done a mistake. And that, in hindsight, obviously shows a person who is more than usual, usually sensitive, mm-hmm. um, particular about very unforgiving about his own shortcomings, about his own mistakes. So was he able then uh, later in his career to to channel or control that? Because one of the episodes you talk about in his uh, in his first season in the Bundesliga in the upper league uh, when he was with uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach is that he set, he set a record for the Bundesliga for letting in in fifteen goals in the span of a week and uh, and and that first season was really a rough season for him, but but. Uh, did that affect him as deeply as that early episode when he was playing in Jena? Not at all. No, that was the astonishing thing that Robert um, 
seen from the outside always seemed quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, he seemed to be the calmest of goalkeeper um, who who didn't care about pressure, who could, as you said, channel pressure very well. And I think um, lots of times, yes, he could. I think we're talking about here, and we're getting now down to the to the the, the score of um, or the bone of that illness. Um, we're talking about a person who is generally a very calm and very with a person with a very good mindset. Mm-hmm. But whenever he was in, infected by that illness, and mm-hmm. it seems that di- there didn't need to be a reason that he suddenly got got infected by that illness, he obviously lost all this calm. But generally. Throughout his career, um, most of the times he he was very very much able to channel that pressure, and he was he was seen as such a great, uh, great goalkeeper, and he was called up by, to play for Germany in the World Cup in South Africa because everybody thought that this is his biggest strength. That yeah. in the in the heat of the moment he would remain calm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was noting as I read some of the terms that that you used and other people used to describe him. People regarded him as humble balanced, mature, a word that seemed to come up repeatedly was, was sweet. One of my favorite descriptions of him that you used was that he, w- he was happy in a wonderfully weightless sort of way. And I found that this made his story all the more tragic because this wasn't a, uh, a, a super-driven, hyper-competitive athlete, a jerk athlete, if you will. Robert appeared to be a, a genuinely pleasant, quiet young man who just happened to be a, a naturally gifted athlete. Yes, I think, but I think he had to fight um, to become that balanced person he was, okay. particularly in this in his later later years. And I think the fact that he had to overcome his first big clinical depression in two thousand and three really helped him um, afterwards to to feel relieved that he had overcome that um, depression and, and to enjoy life more and helped him to, f- to find a balance, to realize that, um, well, football isn't everything in, in his life. And I think um, his whole life he was, he was struggling and fighting between these two extremes of, um, well, getting carried away by the pressure mm-hmm. of... of um, of blaming himself far too much for for minor mistakes, for things he has had done wrong, wrong um, by his own admission or by his own opinion, and nobody else had seen anything wrong. And on the other hand, suddenly being well, very very humble, very balanced, mm-hmm. and um, seeing seeing life as as something you could enjoy. I think he was always torn between these two extremes. Yeah, but was he uh, was he an ambitious athlete? You know, with many young athletes, there's, they have a clear determination to play at the top level, to make a career in sports. Uh, did he demonstrate that? Um, I had the impression when I first met him, yeah, that he was very ambitious okay. and that he was very driven in his younger years. Okay. That, cer- that certainly changed after 2004. Um, then I think he had to find out for himself. Um, and I remember he was in 2004. He was stranded after his first clinical de- depression because mm-hmm, he had to mm-hmm. to quit football for half a year, and he had to start again in the second division in Spain. And I was I visited him there for a week and was in Tenerife, in one of the holiday islands. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a substitute goalkeeper there. And for 
the outside world for the football world that was a shock you know and that was the end of him as a full yeah. professional footballer robert anker the the great hope of germany being stranded in the second division in spain as a substitute goalkeeper on a holiday island and he was happy he was very happy then he had realized for himself then um that yes he wanted to be as good as he could as a goalkeeper but you know, he he wouldn't blow his mind for it anymore. He wouldn't yeah. uh, forget about life anymore because of that. He had found a way to to be a good, ambitious goalkeeper, but not let yourself carry away from from that ambitious from yeah. that ambition. So, what did he enjoy about being a goalkeeper? Um, good question. Is there anything you can enjoy about <laughs> being a goalkeeper? <laughs> well, that's why, and I ask that because uh, given his personality, you know, to be the keeper. Uh, you're the the one person on the on the field who is in the spotlight, as you mentioned earlier. You're the last line of defense, and in reading about him and his personality, it doesn't didn't necessarily seem to fit with uh, with his personality. In particular, handling the pressure of it. So I wondered why why did he like that position? I think he certainly did not chose that position because he liked it. He simply was more rather thrown thrown into that position because he was so good at it yeah um, but but he never deliberately chose that position you know there are goalkeepers who chose that who choose that position because they they are more an individual athlete and mm-hmm. they enjoy being responsible just themselves for for what they do robert certainly wasn't like that um, he ended up being as i said as a goalkeeper because he was so good at it i think what he enjoyed um because he was a perfectionist, or he became a perfectionist rather as a goalkeeper, where these moments where where he had the feeling he had done everything right, um, small details when when he he learned to change his his goal kick, you know, um, his drop kick, and, and later on in the career to the Argentine way um, to kick the ball and stuff, and and yes, when he when he himself um, improved his positioning as a goalkeeper, and in a game he realized he had. St- a shot because he was positioning himself right. Small moments like that gave him tremendous pleasure. But um, I don't think it's it's. Um, I don't think there's really a professional footballer who can honestly say um, I love love the the sports I'm doing every every single moment of it. I think most of the time it is just suffering as a. It's too strong to say, but it's just about well, getting on with it and 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 concentrate so hard that you can't enjoy or or, or suffer from it. You're just doing it without thinking. Yeah. So sticking with uh, these questions about his his personality and his demeanor, I I know that a criticism that was made against Robert in particular is he was uh, emerging as as the next keeper for the German national team was that he was not a fiery character. Uh, in the goal, he was the opposite of, say, uh, Oliver Kahn. Uh, and was there a a suggestion in Germany that because of this reserve demeanor, he wasn't he wasn't driven enough to win? This is something we we often hear in in uh, discussion of sports here in the states that uh, that someone has the drive to win and that they they did want to win or they didn't want to win enough as the explanation for their success or failure. The problem for Robert was, um, as you pointed out, that he had, or that we had in Germany before him in the in the national team, goalkeepers who really were this um, even madly driven persons, mm-hmm. like Oliver Kahn and, and Jens Lehmann, um, 
who who thought a goalkeeper had to be that you know lonely cowboy who who goes with uh, two pistols on the pitch and everything who everybody who comes in front of them they shoot him, shoot them down and uh, they are and Robert hated that image because mm-hmm. he he felt he wasn't like that and um and he he really what at moments was desperate when well the press the public other players other managers threw, threw at him Yes, but uh, he is a good goalkeeper. But where his where is his body language? You know, why is he? As you said, him he doesn't seem to be madly driven. Uh, a goalkeeper has to be obsessed. He's not an obsessed person. And he, he sometimes he was desperately um, arguing. Yes, but it's it's not about um, well going on the pitch and and um, and and jumping on everybody. It's about being calm, position yourself right, and stopping the shops shots. Um, and he found it very hard to convince the German public in the beginning when he when he became a goalkeeper for Germany in I think it was in 2007 when he played first firstly for Germany. But after a while, um, people realized, forgot a bit about Oliver Kahn and, and Jens Lehmann, and that was um, not only Robert's. Um, fault or his, his his luck was also that a new generation of goalkeeper was raised in Germany at the time. Players like Manuel Neuer, who's now in goal for Germany, René Adler, who was uh, the big rival of Robert to get the number one spot for Germany three, four years ago. And they had a totally different approach than the old school goalkeeper to the game. They were much more team players. And I think if you see how the position of the goalkeeper has changed in the last few years, he actually is much more a team player these days than a lonely cowboy. Yeah. He has to get much more involved, you know, with his passing game, push up um, to be to be closer to the defense, and that it seems produces more well more team players than the individual madly driven player. Yeah, yeah. So the club teams he played on uh, in Germany and in Portugal were never very successful in terms of, of wins and losses. And in your view, did that did that affect him in any way? Or was he more, as you said earlier, more fixed on uh, when he as an individual uh, did something particularly well or when he as an individual made a mistake? Was he more fixed on um, his individual performance than on the wins and losses of the team? Yes, I think every goalkeeper in the end... Um sees himself as an individual that um, obviously if, if you go down, if you get relegated, nobody likes it and you will find it very hard to just get fixed on yourself and say what I did right. But um, no, you measure yourself very much on what you do on the pitch. Maybe, I think every player, but maybe a goalkeeper and a striker a bit more than anybody else because they are measured by the public as well by what they did individually, save a goal or, or, or shoot a goal. Um, Robert really was able to make jokes about that every time he joins a team. Um, it seems the team would do, <laughs> would do worse than they expected to do. But uh, on the other hand, he was quite longing to. I, I remember conversations with him and he, and he said lots of time, oh, it would be nice, really nice to win something for the first time in my career. And, uh, and again, chokingly, he said to me, maybe at the end of the, my career, I go down to the second division just, you know, to get at least promoted one time or something. <laughs> um, so no, he seemed to be able to cope with that quite quite well. But obviously, um, playing for a team which doesn't perform puts an extra pressure on you you as well. Um, 
But I think at the end, when he played at Hanover, it was something he quite enjoyed. Um, the English have the expression to be a big fish in a small pond, mm-hmm. you know, that um, everybody re- in Hanover regarded him to be rather too big for the team to play for a mid-table team in Hanover. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really enjoyed that love of the, and admi- admiration of the people. And I think it helped him to perform and helped helped him to, well, to... to um, to stay balanced and enjoy life. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back back in his career, though, and and we talked about his first season of, of starting in Mönchengladbach, and and after that first season, he moved to Portugal to play for for Benfica. And something that struck me in those chapter chapters in which you describe him arriving in in Portugal is how isolating the world of international soccer is. You have these young men of various nationalities who come together on a team, and in many cases, as you describe, they, they don't speak the local language, they don't speak the language of their teammates, they don't speak the language of their coaches. And getting away from the book somewhat, I'll ask you, since you've been covering European football for so long, what, what effects do you see among these young players of, of playing in this isolating environment? I think um, lo- lo- lots of players, as you said, they're not really prepared for it. Um, they are 20, they, they never learned a different language, lots of them, and suddenly they get offered a contract in a country which, well, they wouldn't know the ge- geographic about it, you know, where mm-hmm. would be one city and the other, and they're just thrown into it. And um, s- some of them adapt very well, but very few see it as a gift, as something very nice. You know, most people would think in theory, oh, it's nice to live abroad uh, for a year or two, the experience uh, to discover new countries. Most of them don't really enjoy it. And um, they isolate themselves quite a lot because they also got the feeling they can't disguise anymore. Is the public or are people I met in a bar, in a cinema at night, are they really interested in me as a person or they just are talking to me because I'm that famous footballer? So they're quite suspicious to deal with, uh, with normal people. Um, and so they, they lock themselves in into their, into their big houses and they, they phone home, they watch television from, from their own country and hardly get to know the, the country they live in. Um, there are extreme examples like we had in Germany with a young Brazilian player um, played by Munich by Breno and it seems well his house just burned down and the police is uh, suspecting that he himself burned the house down because he had domestic problems and never really settled in never never learned the language Um, and um, these are extreme examples but I think generally it's fair to say that only a minority of players really enjoys playing abroad. Yeah, yeah. And in in the case of Robert, something you write about when he goes to uh, to Portugal is that he suffered from what you call footballer's disease, that he forgot to take an interest in other people. Yes, I found that uh, quite often when I, when I interview footballers, um, I, I realize that they are not able to ask questions anymore mm-hmm. they are, because they are, they are so used that everybody else is just expecting answers from them that they find it very hard to have a normal conversation where they, where they uh, answer and ask questions. And that was the same with Robert. Um, I have to say, when we got closer, he, he got interested as well. But it was something, for example, the brother of his wife, Teresa, always said he found it rather strange that 
he would sit down with Robert at night, uh, you know, after after dinner, and they would chat. And Robert would not ask a single question about uh, his work. Yeah. You know, and, um, and yes, I think they they isolate themselves lots of time um, in, in as a kind of well security measure because they 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 just don't want to you know have that feeling that every that they are just insecure in a sense how how to deal with people anymore because um, they lived so so much of their time just within that football world that they find it very hard to to deal with people from outside these world now in robert's case though he did come to to adapt well to portugal he he learned the language quickly he came to uh, to love the country, and this became something of a haven for him and his wife Teresa. Yes, it took him. It took him a while, as you said. He was just thrown into Portugal by the by the the mere fact, the only fact that uh, Benfica signed a, a German manager, and that German manager wanted him. They offered him unbelievably good money, so he felt he he couldn't turn that down, and uh, he arrived in Portugal and just panicked with um, anxiety. He didn't, wanted to leave immediately. Uh, he didn't want to be there. And then something very ironic and very beautiful happened. Um, he had to be there because he signed a contract. And um, the more he stayed, in the end he stayed three years in Portugal, um, he really fell in love with the country and the lifestyle. Um, so it is a good case of, a, of where, where you can see that a player after after a few months can can settle in and can fall in love with the country and can enjoy enjoy living abroad. But then again, something very typical in the football world happens. Then the drive takes over that mm-hmm. that feeling that um, you always have to you know be more ambitious to mm-hmm. aim higher. Um, and and he felt even if he was very happy in Benfica, even he was at the age of 23 club captain for the biggest side in, in, in Portugal, he a foreigner, um, even if he got praise wherever he went, um, he he felt, no, I have to move on, I have to aim higher. And later on, he really hated himself um, for that that blind ambitious ambition, as I would call it. And he realized because of that experience, because he left Benfica after three years for Barcelona, he realized um, in hindsight, and he learned from that experience, you shouldn't always aim higher. You should, in football and life, realize, be able to realize what you have and, and try to be happy and, and cherish the things you have. So I'll ask then, uh, you mentioned already the, the move from Benfica to Barcelona in 2002, and, uh, and one might think that, that this would be the move, the, the move to the summit of European soccer, but, but it proved to be disastrous, really, for Robert. And it made, made it even, even more uh, or even harder for him that it seemed the move. Uh, I remember him arriving here in Barcelona, we met... I think a few. I was on holiday, but a few weeks after he arrived, we met for the first time, and I, I never seen him that happy, um, enthusiastic before. Um, he was choking all the time. He spoke to, then he spoke to people he didn't know, on even in a in a cafe shop. Um, but he didn't make it as number one at at Barcelona, and he blamed himself so much for that. He 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 could he wasn't able to play properly anymore because. Um, the anxiety turned into fear and he went on the pitch and was just gripped by that fear. I can only do things wrong here. Um, I, I, mean, I won't be able you know, to have a good game for Barcelona. And obviously, if you go into a game thinking like that, 
you, you can't have a good game. And that happened to him and it really, it really, well, I would, I would use the word destroyed him for, for a while. Um, and nobody else around him could help him there. He, he even went to see a, a psychologist at the time. His friends were around him. We were saying to him, listen, this is not the end of the world. Um, you're still a great goalkeeper. You still got a wonderful life. Maybe you have to find another club, but um, there you've got every reason to to believe in yourself and pick yourself up. But he wasn't able to do that anymore. Yeah, and can I ask you to to explain that that one particular match where where he did get a chance to start and and yet it it turned out disastrously. He signed for Barcelona with the hope to be their number one goalkeeper. Um, they had another goal, good goalkeeper from the Argentina national side, Roberto Bonanno. Um, and Robert soon found out or had the impression in training that he was at the time fitter than Roberto, maybe not better, but fitter, that he should start. But surprisingly to Robert, um, the manager at the time preferred the third choice goalkeeper, a young guy called Victor Valdez, who by now is quite yeah. famous because he's Barcelona's number one goalkeeper since that very day. But at the time he was from the Barcelona B side, uh, B team, being 20 years old. And Robert was... But he took it as an offense towards him or, or he again blamed it on himself. How bad must I be in training if um, the manager prefers the number three goalkeeper? But um, Victor didn't play particularly well. There came a cup game against the third division side, Novelda. They were actually bottom from the third division at the time. And the manager said to Robert, you know, I, you get your chance in that game. Robert went to that game. Days before the game, he was already desperate um, driving everybody around him mad by by his desperation and then say, just saying, I can only lose in this game. I can only lose. Um, because he thought, you know, if Barcelona beat a third division side, well, it would be just business as normal and mm -hmm. um, nobody would talk about the goalkeeper. But if they won't win the game, well, the blame game would start and obviously the goalkeeper would be to blame. So with that mindset, he went into the, to that game. And as I described earlier, if you go into a game thinking, I can only lose, uh, there's a good probability that you will lose. Um, and Robert, the Barcelona lost 2-3 that game against the bottom of the league uh, side from the third division. Um, and Robert was half to blame or, or, or to blame for, for two of the three goals. Um, he never really recovered from that time in, from that uh, blow in his time in Barcelona. He, he was sitting at home at the, at the pool in the garden thinking, um, I want to quit football. Um, I don't want to play anymore. And he was rather sooner than later, well, getting into that first very first clinical depression, um, with a mindset he had then after that game. Yeah. Yeah. So you had mentioned there that he was, he was saying I, I should quit football and, and I'll say as a reader, uh, and I, I give this this is testament to your skill as a writer. As, as I was reading it, and I was drawn to to Robert's character, you know, I was hoping against you know against fact that the end would turn out differently. He was he you know he was such an endearing character. I thought I I hope that the end of the book turns out differently than I know the end will be. And I was thinking repeatedly, get out of football, get out of yes. football. And did you, did you get that sense in in terms of either as you were you were writing it or or when you knew him that he was uh, he was just in the wrong line of work? 
that's obviously a, th- a thought I, I have with me or will have with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and I thought about it many, many times. And my opinion but is um, it's difficult to say, but I think it wouldn't have changed anything. Um, I think Robert was suffering from, from depression. Mm-hmm. And obviously football triggered that depression lots of times. But we don't have any any evidence just the hope that it would have turned out differently if he would have done a different job um that maybe you know he wouldn't have um slipped into depression again i think it it would have would have happened to him um as well in other jobs um but yes i think lots of people didn't understand it why didn't he quit football he put so much pressure on himself by hiding his depression um, he should have gone to the clinic, uh, given up football, and everything could have come differently. Yes, it could have. But yeah. I think giving up football really wasn't an option for him because he, he couldn't see himself in any other profession. Um, and this is something, the first instinct is always to say, oh, come on, there are so many other lovely jobs. He would have found a, a great job. And yes, maybe he would have. But I, I think if you if you love a job, and I mean, I can put myself as an example if somebody would have t- to tell me you have to give up writing ronnie mm-hmm. um, first instinct would be no i can't i can't um that's the one thing i i'm sort of good at that's the one thing i want to do that's the thing i've done for the last uh, two decades i can't just stop doing it and that was the same with robert um he was the national team goalkeeper for germany it, it felt in his mindset impossible to give up football so can you talk about then, uh, so, so he goes into this depression in Barcelona, it, it's magnified with his short spell with the Turkish club Fenerbahce, uh, how then did he uh, recover from this, uh, from this first bout of, of serious clinical depression? How did he and his wife Teresa deal with this? I think and that's even the more tragic, or that makes the story even more tragic, that Robert did everything right to deal with depression. Um, first of all, he admitted to himself that he was suffering from a disease. Mm-hmm. This is something very few people suffering from depression are able to, you know, because they are so ashamed of their depression, they're in denial all the time. And he admitted it straight away. He, he felt, yes, I'm suffering from depression. Depression, I need some treatment. That's the ne- next step. He did very, very well. Um, he, w- he saw the um, psycho- psych- psychiatrist, is that the right word? Psychiatrist. Uh, psychiatrist, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> One part of the word missing. And he, and he was looking really hard to find somebody who, who, who he would uh, be able to work with. Uh, I think he went to see three or four psychiatrists before yeah. he decided, yes, that's the one. Um, so he had treatment. He had medical treatment. He had uh, set talking sessions with the psychiatrist. And after half a year, um, he, had, he was able to overcome that depression. This, again, seems to be something, I mean, there are no clear pattern to depression, but depression, but it seems that lots of people suffering from a severe clinical depression, it lasts between four and six months for, for lots of people. And that was the case with Robert after his first clinical depression. Six months later, um, he, could see a, he could see clearly again, and he was a very, very happy man. Um, and I think he was lucky in a sense as well that he had in a, in his inner inner circle of friends and his wife, he had people who really wanted to understand that illness as well and then be able to deal with it. 
and um, his wife Teresa and his even his agent. You know, agents are always portrayed as money crapping people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 he had really an agent who was trying working his socks off to 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 help Robert with that disease and. Um, so he was lucky in that, and he overcame the first depression and went to the second division, as I pointed out before, in, in Spain. Everybody thinking that's the end of it, and for him, no, it was the beginning, the beginning of a life after depression again. Yeah, And after he comes through that first depression, uh, another story, a parallel story, are the efforts of, of Robert and his wife Teresa to have children, and they have just terrible tragedy in, the, in their efforts to have a family, and yet Robert handles this very well. Yes, they, they, they had a daughter, Lara. Um, she was born with a heart disease, so it was quite clear from the start the chances that she would survive or that she would get old were very slim. And again, and I don't not at all want to sound cynical, um, it helped Robert um, that he had somebody to care about, somebody to care for. Um, it, it really gave his life an aim, a target. Um, and and he, he and Teresa were there 24 hours, you could say, for his daughter. And, and it helped him to take football not too serious anymore um, because he realized that, obviously, there was something more serious, and that was the health of his daughter. And when Lara was... Uh, a bit more than two years old, she, she sadly died after an operation. And again, from the outside, Robert handled that loss very well, very bravely. I think you can never overcome the loss of, of a child. But um, they, they learned to live with, with, the, um, with the sadness and with the pain. And um, he, seemed, he seemed quite stable after that. And lots of people... Uh, wrongly links the death of, of Lara with his depression. Um, that certainly wasn't the case. You know, he was suffering from depression before, long before Lara was born. And there is no sign that his second depression was triggered by Lara's, Lara's death because she was dead, I think, uh, three years before Robert was hit again by, by depression. And I'll ask about this this second struggle with depression and his final struggle with depression. Was there anything that that you could identify that uh, that sparked this depression, such as the the match in Novelda in Spain, which which affected him so badly? No, and that was a despairing thing. Uh, he himself couldn't see anything. He was writing in his diary, "Why, why now?" He couldn't see anything, which could be a reason to to uh, to get depressed again. And I think it tells you something about um, the nature of this illness. It hasn't got a logic. It can hit people who are prone to it, it seems. Well, for a minor reason, they don't realize themselves. It can be people like Robert who, who come through, you know, tragic moments like losing their daughter without, I'm not saying without any problem, but without getting depressed. And then three years later, out of the blue, it seems, they're hit by the depression again. So we know a lot of, about depression, um, what it does to people, you know, what, um, like, the, like it happened to Robert, they're unable to get up in the morning, they are not able anymore to have any positive thoughts. But we don't know anything um, why depression appear in some people at some stage. Science hasn't been able to, to come up with a, with a pattern so far why depression break out. And that was clearly the case with Robert in 2009 at a moment where 
well, he should have been the happiest in his life. They yeah. just adopt, adopted a second child, Lila. He was Germany's number one. Um, he was living with the woman he loved in, in uh, being set in, in Hanover, having friends around him. So there shouldn't have been any reason why, why depression set in again. And as you said, with the earlier depression, uh, with, the, with the second depression, once again, he, he, he did everything uh, that was necessary to try to overcome it, correct? Immediately, immediately, because he had it before. He knew or he thought he knew exactly what to go. I think in the book I use the expression he wanted to attack the, the, the illness like he would attack a striker with a ball on his feet in front of goal. You know, he, he thought he knew exactly the motions he had to go through, through to. He went immediately to the psychiatrist again. He took um, medicines, um, the, the, the one he had in 2003 before. So, uh, yes, he, he knew that he, he would need a daily routine, that he, he shouldn't allow himself to just hang around because then, you know, his, the, the black thoughts would occur again. So, yes, um, he did everything he should have done, but it wasn't enough this time. Mm-hmm. So there's been much attention about the, the mental health and, of athletes and, and uh, depression among athletes, and in, in large part because of the case of Robert, but, but other well-known athletes both in Europe and the United States. And I was wondering in reading your book, uh, there, there's been a lot of attention in Germany, I know in particular, writing about Robert's case. Is there a, uh, is there a particular lesson that you wanted to uh, present in your book? My two big aims were I wanted to portray Robert in every detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one, one obsession I wanted. And, and I wanted the reader to be close to him to understand depression. Mm-hmm. I don't, don't think I should – I didn't hope really that you know, people's attitude or the public's attitude to depression – can change by reading one book. But I think, um, I mean, take myself as an example. Before Robert's case, I didn't understand depression properly. I had a vague idea what depression was about. And I wanted people to, to explain to people that this is an illness, that it's not about a person who who should pull him, pull himself together to get over it. No, this is a serious illness as cancer. And as with cancer, you need to fight it, and if you're lucky, you can survive it. But uh, there is a great chance that you won't survive it. That was my my ambition, uh, maybe that people would understand what's going on in the mind of, of a person suffering from it and what this illness um, turns a person into. Mm-hmm. So we're almost out of time, but, but I'll ask you at the end in terms of uh, how has writing this book uh, affected the way you now cover football. Are you, uh, do you think you have a, a greater awareness of, of, or attention to the mental states of the, of the players that you cover? Uh, I would hope to believe that I always had this. Um, personally, to be honest, I find it quite hard to go back to football writing because it, it seems, uh, well, it lost lots of attraction for me since, since Robert died because I still link football with Robert or even more since, since he died. So, um, no, it, it, it has only changed me in the way that it, I find it very hard to, to go on working, basically, mm-hmm. um, because it, it felt like I've done the most important thing in my working life. I've done that mm-hmm. with this book. Um, I, um, so... I, I look, I, 
the, it has changed in a sense that yes, I get lots of phone calls from from players, from agents who who are suffering some kind of mental problem, not necessarily a mental disease, but a mental problem in in the world of football. And it has changed in a sense that I'm obviously trying to help them to mm-hmm. you know point them in some direction where they maybe maybe where they could find help and and um, and yeah. So it, it changed on the level that I've got another another connection to the football world now but it hasn't changed really the way I cover football Mm -hmm. so well let me ask in following up so getting these these contacts from players and from agents and so forth uh are you you getting a new sense of how uh how to phrase this but uh for professional athletes that this can be really a, a a psychologically demanding uh you know, perhaps more than people should should be allowed to bear a psychologically demanding line of work. It can, yes. I certainly um, I got, certainly didn't realize that before Robert's death. Um, but I also think we have to we should point out that most athletes deal well with this self-employed, self-made pressure and the pressure from the outside. Um, and I think it is in human nature, not only when you're an athlete that your own mistakes, you always, um, they are more present on your mind, the negative sides, your own mistakes than the, the pluses, than the good points. That can happen to anybody, you know. You get, you get novelists who go mad just thinking about uh, one or two words they've gone in their own mind, own opinion done wrong in, in their novel. Um, and I think most footballers deal well with that. But it's certainly, uh, it would help, I think, if we look as on sportsmen, on footballer, as human beings as well, and not only treat them as, you know, I don't know, cartoon images um, who, if they win, are the greatest and are most unbelievable people in the world, and one week later, if they lose, we, we just abuse them. Um, it would be nice if, it, if, if our perspective of them changes and that, that we see the, the human in them as well, and to be human... Um, suffering as part of, of being human. Um, and mm, I think in Germany it has changed a bit since Robert's death that people realize um, there's a human being in front of them. Not necessarily how they treat them during a game, but um, I think if, if somebody in German football comes out and, and talks about his own weaknesses, people at least don't laugh about him anymore. They give him the respect he, he should owe, owe to. So I'll ask at the end, Roni, you said it's uh, uh, difficult to return to football writing and you talked about what a, uh, uh, a draining work this was to, uh, to write Robert's life story. But do you have another project that you're working on now? Um, yes, I, I finished another one already, <laughs> uh, quite a light one, uh, and it was good. It helped me a lot. Um, I was ghostwriting for a German footballer who played in England for 11 years, Moritz Foltz. He played mm-hmm. for Fulham. Uh, earlier for Arsenal and um, we did not a football book or not necessarily a football book but um, sort of a travel book you know a, a German in, in London yeah. a German among the English um, observing the British this kind of book and it was quite light and very enjoyable to work with him and um, right off the, at the moment I'm doing a novel actually um, and it has something to do with um, my problems to go back to into football writing it's about mm-hmm. 
a sports reporter um, who finds it hard to be a sports <laughs> reporter anymore. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm drifting into, into book writing at the moment a bit. Okay, okay. Well, I look, that's, that sounds fascinating. But uh, I, I really enjoyed this. I found this to be a wonderful book. It was, it was a terribly sad book, but uh, wonderfully written. And, and the portrait, uh, you did succeed in, in terms of, of uh, giving a portrait of Robert, of your friend, that uh, was both insightful and also presented him, as, as I said earlier, as, a, as an endearing character, as, as a tragic character. So uh, thank you for coming on the program, Ronnie. Thank you very much, and sorry about. Uh, I realize I haven't been speaking English for more than ten years. So, um, if I was struggling at the times, so I still hope you you did understand me. Oh no, absolutely, absolutely, far better than my German. <laughs> well, we do that the next time then in <laughs> German. You've been listening to an interview with Ronald Reng about his book, A Life Too Short: The Tragedy of Robert Enka, published in 2011 by Yellow Jersey Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of recent publications in subjects from biography and Buddhist studies to politics and philosophy. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to New Books and Sports at the iTunes Store and link to our Facebook page, where you can offer feedback and find links to thoughtful, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.